You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach. Welcome back to Five Things That Make Life Better during this very peculiar time. I'm at home. I am wearing pants. And I have a guest this week who's fantastic. It's Billy Shore, the founder and executive chair of Share Our Strength, which is now 36 years old. It's an organization dedicated to eradicate poverty and hunger in the United States. No Kid Hungry, the focus of our talk today, is the campaign that grew out of Share Our Strength. Billy Shore is a recognized expert on poverty and hunger, an author, a lawyer, a teacher. Before he co-founded Share Our Strength with his sister, Debbie Shore, Billy was in politics, where we met once for a second. He also hosts Add Passion and Stir, a weekly podcast that brings together high-profile chefs and changemakers to talk about the central role food plays in social justice. Welcome, Billy, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. You know, we have learned over the last few years that there are things called food deserts in America, which are not deserts exactly. Could you explain that and how those who live in poverty have less access to real food, to healthy food? Yeah. Well, it's a particularly interesting topic to be talking about now because as a result of all of the schools being closed because of coronavirus, So many Americans have, I think, learned for the first time how many kids and families actually depend on schools as one of the main sources of their food and nutrition. So when you talk about food deserts, we usually talk about that, meaning uh, communities where, uh, unlike where most of us live or many of us live, uh, there are no grocery stores. There are only convenience stores and bodegas and corner stores and almost impossible to, in less than an hour's drive, find any produce or fruit or vegetables. So that's one piece of it. But you know, the other big piece, as I say, to become clear now is that we've got 22 million kids in the U.S. who are eligible for and are getting a free or reduced price school lunch. That's because of how low their, their family income is. And all 22 million are also eligible for breakfast. But when we started focusing on this a few years ago, we found out that only 9 million of the 22 million were getting it because at lunch, they're already there. At breakfast, there's some logistical complications. And now, as I said, that the schools are closed, you've got 50 million public school students, about half of whom depended on free or reduced price meals, but all of whom were depending on eating at the school cafeteria or in their classroom, who now are not getting that. And so, you know, the the goal of the Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign in this particular moment has been to replace those meals. Right. And we've heard a lot about that here in New York. Governor Cuomo has been very vocal about and so is Mayor de Blasio about how to get these kids food while they're in lockdown. How do you do that at No Kid Hungry? Well, so we've done it a variety of ways. We basically had to build kind of an alternate universe to the entire school system, uh, both urban and rural across the United States. So in the last four weeks, we've distributed about $9.9 million, $10 million in grants to about 350 schools and school districts that are replacing school meals by either setting up outside of the school, kind of a grab and go. So somebody could drive by, a family can drive by and pick Mm -hmm. up packages of food. In some communities, the bus drivers are driving their routes. And instead of picking the kids up, they're dropping the food off at the corners where they would usually pick them up. In some cases, the schools are partnering with YMCAs or boys and girls clubs or, or food banks. So we have found lots of different ways to do it. And as 
kind of depressing as it is to think that that many millions of Americans depend on this as a way of feeding their families. It is in many ways the one most solvable aspect of this whole terrible COVID-19 crisis because you know we worry about shortages of masks and ventilators and hospital beds. We have no shortages of food in this country. Um, if we have the will, we can get the food to the people who need it. And when it's delivered, is it delivered in its raw state, like a, a meal kit, or is it prepared? Yeah, lots of different ways. You know, every, every school system has their own contract with a, you know, a food vendor. It might be a large one or it might be a local one. Usually they're prepared uh, foods and, you know, kind of ready to eat. If you can remember back to school meals when you and I were getting school meals, I'd say they're a little better than that, but it's not necessarily what you would want your family to dine on on a regular basis. But, you know, at a time like this. It's food. I mean, when I watch the news and see the endless lines outside of grocery stores or distribution centers of American families, good folks who are waiting two hours, three hours to get a $30 bag at Kroger's or a gift worth of food or a gift certificate worth $30 of food. That is not only appalling and heartbreaking, but it feels like America has become a third world nation. Isn't this what we used to do when we would send planes and drop huge bags of rice over Africa? I mean, how how did we become this country? Yeah, it's really pretty crazy. You know, every Friday afternoon since this COVID crisis has started, I do a phone call that Lorraine Powell Jobs' organization, the Emerson Collective, organizes. And Arnie Duncan, former Secretary of Education, chairs this call. And it's with the leaders of the, you know, the major national hunger organizations. And we all talk about how many meals we provided this week, where the gaps are, how many we have left to go, what are the obstacles to feeding people or getting food to schools that need it. And, you know, when I get off the calls, I always have two conflicting emotions. One is like, this is just like an absolute marvel of social entrepreneurship and Mm -hmm. incredible that we built this system. But the other is just how ludicrous and almost disgraceful it is that this is the way we're actually feeding Americans. And the reason that we've been so focused on school meals is they're kind of a great equalizer. You know, everybody eats together at school and they've now through technology and a variety of other means, there's not that much stigma to being the kids who need the meals. It's frankly, in most of our public schools, it's it's mostly universal. Right. Uh, And these meals are 100% federally reimbursed. So if we can spend a million dollars as we have over the last four weeks to provide the equipment to feed kids outside and the the tables and the refrigeration and the hand carts, whatever it is they need, the meals themselves are reimbursed. So there's a great leverage there. Mm-hmm. And these are programs that have gone back, you know, 40, 50, 60 years with a lot of bipartisan support. How many families live in poverty and therefore are hungry on a non-COVID basis? Yeah. So on a non-COVID basis, I would have said there's something like 20 million kids in the country, 20 to 30 million who were really, you know, at or below the poverty line, living in a family at or below the poverty line. Now, as you know, in the last three weeks, we've seen over 16, I think it's 22 million Americans now have applied for unemployment insurance. They've lost their jobs. So we're in a whole different world. This was always an issue before. And, you know, I, I always think that solving poverty is complex. I don't have all the answers. Feeding a child is not. We know how to do that. So yes. there's at least one element of this, again, that is is solvable. And that's been our focus. 
But, How did you, know, you make the change from politics to hunger and poverty? Well, I, I was a, a principal architect of three losing presidential campaigns. So, so is, the, I, the I probably was, voted for each one of them. Yeah. Yeah. The, ch- the change was probably made for me, but I worked for uh, Senator Gary Hart from Colorado through two of his presidential runs and then Bob Kerry from Nebraska through one of his, both great guys. And I learned a ton. And actually it was after Hart ran the first time back to 1984. You're going to be too young to remember all this, but you know, Live Aid and We Are the World, the Ethiopian Famine, Bob Geldof, USA for Africa. All of that happened literally within 30 days of the Democratic Convention in 1984 when Gary Hart came in second. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I've got all these kind of political organizing skills, community organizing skills. Maybe we could put this to some other use. And that was really the catalyst for starting Share Strength. Wow. Now, do restaurants get involved? I know there are organizations that are able to collect unsold food from restaurants in the days that we had restaurants. Was that part of Share Our Strength? Were you able to collect food from them? You know, we funded organizations that did that. We didn't do that ourselves, but restaurants have been right at the very center of everything we do. Because from the time we first started the organization up through now, we had this notion that chefs and restaurateurs would feel a connection to the issue of hunger since they made their livelihoods from feeding people. And we started to organize them to participate in food and wine events and cooking events, uh, dinners, using their skills, which sometimes they even took for granted, to teach low-income families about food budgeting and grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. And if you know how to carve up a chicken and you buy a chicken whole, that's a lot cheaper than buying chicken parts. So we ended up with about 25,000 chefs and restaurateurs very, very involved with us. Uh, Danny Myers, you know, company in New York, of course. Yes, he's been a a guest on the show. And it's helped us raise, you know, again, before COVID, when restaurants were up and running, um, we were raising about $85 million a year. And a very high percentage of that was related to restaurant activity. And in turn, we fund organizations that maybe pick up perishable foods from restaurants like you were describing. But mostly we were focused on these school breakfast and school meal programs. I feel that I've seen in the past when there were restaurants and I went to them, I have a feeling that sometimes a, a check came with a yeah. sheet of paper from Share Our Strength and would you contribute or round up to, uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so they've, they've raised money for us in lots of different ways. And we started out working with you know the fine dining and independent restaurants. And then we started working with the casual dinings and the TGI Fridays and the Applebee's mm-hmm. and the IHOPs. And as I say, today, probably 25, 30,000 restaurants involved with us. And it put us in a position of not having to raise money in the kind of the traditional ways that we didn't want to because we didn't want to compete with the brother and sister organizations we were funding. Also, there's something a little maybe uncomfortable about going to a fancy ball to raise money for hungry people. Yeah. Uh, You know, I always, I mean, there is that paradox, but you know, I always think of when they asked, you know, Willie Sutton, why he robbed banks, he said, that's where the money is. So (laughs) you you kind of have to be where the money is. Yeah. Um, In terms of poverty and being stuck in a position in the world from which you cannot rise, I'm sure food plays the primary role. But education itself, not just as a place to get lunch, but as a place to learn and to aspire. Is education sort of the next level of lifting someone, lifting a family out of poverty? I think it is. I think for most families, it's the, the you know the most uh, logical way out. Uh, you know, I'll give you a good example of what I've seen recently, and to me, it was so encouraging. 
we were at a school in California, a school district where there were, this is in El Monte, California. It's about 45 minutes inland from Los Angeles. So 7,500 kids in the school system, 2,500 of the 7,500 were homeless, which is a shocking thing to even get your mind around. A very high percentage of them had uh, families, uh, parents who were undocumented and couldn't get great paying work. And 99% of the 7,500, whether they were homeless or undocumented or whatever, were at the poverty line. Mm. So in the past, that would have been a prescription for these kids also being hungry. These would have been like social determinants of if, if that's your life, you're hungry. Right. None of these kids are hungry. They're getting breakfast in school. They're getting lunch in school. We actually support an after-school supper program as well, which is also oh, wow. 100% federally reimbursed. And so these kids who you know I've visited a number of times, they're really thriving. And so there's this paradox of, unfortunately, they're poor and they're living with all the stresses and the, in many cases, the toxic stresses of poverty. But at least they've got a chance to do well in school, to mm-hmm. break this cycle, to you know get ahead. Which, not to say that you know, school meals are a, a panacea for all of our problems, but they really do create a different dynamic and give kids a chance if you at least take away the, the hunger piece of it. Well, but education is really the, the yeah. Key. I mean, if you're paying attention to a school district, that tells me that somebody cares about these kids and somebody cares about the quality of teaching too, because if a school is only a food delivery system, that does a lot, but it doesn't do all it needs to do. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the public school system is really the only thing this country has to support the poor. Yeah, that's the, that's the infrastructure. And there was an article in the New York Times just in the last couple of days, one in the LA Times also this past weekend about how during this COVID crisis, schools have become the food hubs for a lot of families. And they're not just feeding kids. I talked to a school superintendent yesterday who said, you know, our dirty little secret is we're feeding everybody. You know, we're only supposed to get reimbursed for feeding kids. But during a crisis like this, you have, and we've all seen the same pictures on the news, thousands of people lining up for food. We're just going to feed everybody until the food runs out. Wow. That's great. Do you think that's an attitude shared by a lot of school districts? Increasingly, I do. I think right now, and I think, you know, everybody has felt so hopeless in the face of the coronavirus crisis, and everybody's wanted to find some way to do something to make things a little bit better for their community or for their neighbors. I I think a lot of people share that attitude, yeah. How can our listeners help you just in giving money or making sandwiches or joining a line of people who are passing, you know, buckets along? What can we do? Well, it's because trickier we, now. Feel, we feel helpless in our little bubble of yeah. our well, I think there of are, quarantine. There are a couple of ways people can be supportive. It's a little more limiting now with social distancing and so forth, right? right? We're not out volunteering in a hands-on way like we used to be, but uh, certainly donating. And our, our website is nokidhungry.org. And when you go to nokidhungry.org, there's not only a big donate button that'll you know hit you right in the nose, but there's some very specific ways that you can also be an advocate. So one of the things that we've had to do and People writing, you know, sending emails to their members of Congress has has been very effective. We've had to change a number of laws, and we've done that in the last three or four weeks. They've been included in these stimulus packages that Mm -hmm. Congress has passed. It used to be that a school literally could not give a meal to anybody but a kid. We changed that so the parent can pick up the meal. It used to be you you mean they couldn't even hand it. Even hand it to a parent. No, Uh, 
and, and they couldn't hand them more than one. Now they can hand them five or 10. We changed that as well because obviously oh, people don't want to leave their homes as much. So there's some advocacy measures in terms of public policy that are delineated on our website. And then, of course, donating. We've had 36,000 individual donations in the last four weeks, which for us is extremely unusual, to say the least. And we've turned that around and put all that money back into these community sites that are feeding kids. I imagine when life, I don't want to say returns to normal, because I think the next normal will not be what we're used to. But I can imagine that the schools themselves would also be the place where this underserved population, not underserved by you, but underserved in or overlooked population, might also be getting their coronavirus vaccines, you know, down the yeah, road. Right. Absolutely. That we have turned our schools and our public libraries into places of safety, haven, advice, food, comfort. Yeah. We're even seeing in the short term, you know, one of the problems in our field has always been feeding kids in the summertime when the schools are closed. Oh, yes. And now we've talked to a lot of schools that are going to just, again, as a result of this crisis, they're going to stay open and keep feeding kids the way they've been outside the school or having parents pick things up or bus, bus drops. Many of them are going to continue that throughout the summer. So I think you're right. They're increasingly going to take on a, a role that enables us to reach creates the infrastructure and the vehicle to reach people that are hard, otherwise hard to reach. Oh, well, that's fantastic. And, and it gives us hope, despite the fact that days feel long and yes. sad and hopeless, and there's all this lying by the federal government and the infighting between governments and hospitals and governors. And it's that is kind of you used the word earlier, disgrace. To me, that's the disgrace. But we're going to, this is an upbeat show, as everybody can tell, and you're an upbeat guy. And I really, really am happy that we finally got to talk. Oh, so man. I'd love to hear your five things that make your life better. Well, you know, I struggled with this a little bit because some yeah. of them sound so trite. Like, you know, the top of my list is family. But of it's course- the top of everybody's list, yeah. It's to be the top of everyone's. Yeah. Um, it's hoping to be a little bit more distinctive, but when I think about my, my wife and my sons and, and my sister who started Share Our Strength with me, my niece, the role they play in my life, you know, nothing else even comes close. And that's, you know, that's my default, right? Whenever there's any moment. So that would be one. Yeah. Um, the second would be this notion that's built into our name at Share Our Strength of creating vehicles through which people can literally share their strength. They can give back. You know, we've, even when we started some 35 years ago, we found that people who were maybe not political, were not wealthy, didn't have a check to write, they still wanted to find a way to make a difference. And so when we started to go to chefs and restaurateurs, we were like, here is literally a way that you can share your strength. So that's mm -hmm. been very fulfilling. About a year ago, Lisa, I became a volunteer firefighter in this little town in Maine. Wow. Uh, which was done at the behest of my son, who uh, is now 15, and he was obsessed with me doing this. And his, his <laughs> argument to me was that he said, if you become a volunteer firefighter, Dad, you could actually save lives instead of typing on your laptop and telling yourself that you're saving lives. <laughs> so, oh, that's brutal. And, and, when I, and, well, and, then, and then when I went to talk to the chief, you know, just to kind of like finally humor my son, being this wasn't going to go very far. Uh, the chief said to me, he said, well, you know, so you'd be a good candidate. And I said, why is that? He said, you'd lower the average age of the department by a few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
funny, I've been a volunteer firefighter and that's been, it's actually, you know, for someone who's spent 15 years as a kind of a summer resident of a community, probably spending most of my time with other summer residents to really get to know the community. All the other firefighters, there's about 80 of them Are here. Are year round? They're year round and they're hardworking and they're great people. And I just, you know, never would have had a chance to know them any other way. So, if your 15-year-old son had asked you to jump off a dock, would you do that? Well, I keep wondering like, where the end of this is. The, the, the most recent one, Lisa, was he had an opportunity. Uh, another firefighter met him and, and kind of took a liking to him, and he invited him to do a 10-hour ice rescue technician course where they cut a hole in a frozen lake in January oh my. in Maine, and you spend 10 hours doing rescue drills. And uh, he's asked if he could do it. And I said, of course. And he was like, well, you're going to do it with me, aren't you, dad? And I was like, are you kidding? Anyhow, we're both now certified ice rescue technicians. Oh, man. But, you know, I, of course, you know, ended up three days later, you know, in the ER, just getting x-rays for all the bruises on me being pulled out of this ice shelf. Anyhow, oh you know, man, he's, he's disproportionately influential in my, in my life and my choices. I've got to talk to your wife about him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so that would be number three. Number four would be my bike. We created this event at Share Strength called Chef's Cycle. As I mentioned we work with all these chefs and restaurateurs. And a 300-mile bike ride that we've done five times now. Uh, every May, we do it in California. Can't do it this year because of COVID. No. But it's 100 miles a day for three days, so it's quite a push. And it's one of those kind of classic cases of everybody, but I would say especially me, finding out that you're capable of more than you think you are. And, you know, it's very kind of empowering. It raises about... Two and a half million a year for the No Kid Hungry campaign. Wow. Well, I would say number three also showed us that you can push yourself beyond. Does your son yeah. do the bike ride with you? He does the third day of the bike ride. He does the last 100 miles with me. Yeah. This year he was going to do all 300, but wow. we'll have to wait till next year. Right. And number and five. I, and then I think the last thing, which you'll probably identify with, because um, you're such a good writer, is writing, which I find just to be very, you know, for me, it's always less kind of expository and more revelatory. It's more kind of like, I don't know what, psychotherapeutic to write and to find out what was in my what head. You were and thinking. What you thinking, yeah. yeah what, to find out what I was thinking. So those are the five. Really good list, Billy. Do you, do you ever get to say what your five are? I always get to say what my five oh, are. Oh, tell me. You want my five? I yes, usually please. do it after the guest has gone, but I will do it right now. Oh, good. You know, this is episode 94. So believe me, I've used my family. You've done more than five. Okay. Many, many more. But here are this week's. Cooking boo-boos, ah. because I've been cooking so much, and Michael, who you just met, have been cooking so much, we are now into the experimental phase, <laughs> <laughs> given the fact that I don't want to go to the store every day when I have a missing ingredient. So there have been some classic boo-boos, and now I've learned that really when you boil cauliflower and mix it with pasta, you have to do something so it's not chalky and you can swallow. It's just, I wouldn't have known. Number two are clementines. Wow. I find I have a deep desire for citrus. Well, I think, because I think I'm getting scurvy by staying at home all the time. Number three, I had a video doctor's appointment yesterday and I loved it. It was like a house call. I felt like I was home. Well, I was home. And what, you were learning to Zoom or what? Oh, like a real doctor's appointment. It was a real doctor's appointment. And it wasn't, it was Zoom-ish, but it was the hospital that she works for system. I stood by. I was told to stand by. I was also given an opportunity to pay for the uh, visit before it started. <laughs> 
but I didn't feel short shrift. I had a good talk with her and I, I thought, oh, when I was a kid, my doctor would come to the house when I was sick or my brothers were sick. And I already felt better when he entered our threshold. And then my parents would talk to him. And if we were the last visit of the day, my father would say, Dr. Bauer, can I offer you a brandy or something? And it was very civilized, very Austin, or very olden days, charming. Um, Number four, the video offerings that entertainers are putting out every day to allay our agony and just create a diversion of joy and happiness. And number five for me are the healthcare workers, essential workers. When I do go out and I see the same lady cashier at our little market, I'm so grateful. I always yeah. thank them for, yeah. for coming home, so yeah. uh, coming into work. So that's my list. Okay. But I'm going to try Clementines. Clementines. I'm telling yeah. you, the, the because you can peel them and you get all the pith off. Of saying that is it pith? I think it is pith. And you, um, yes, and and especially when they don't have pits, they have pith, but no pits. Yeah. <laughs> so that's okay. it. Good to know. Now I'm gonna say goodbye. I'm gonna thank you, Billy. It's been a long time coming and worth the wait. Well, I'm glad we finally did it. Thank you. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach, at home wearing pants. My guest this week has been Billy Shore, founder and executive chair of Share Our Strength, the parent organization for the No Kid Hungry campaign that is ending childhood hunger in America. You can follow Billy on Twitter and Instagram at Bill Shore. You can also follow No Kid Hungry on Instagram and Twitter at No Kid Hungry, or check out their website at www.shareourstrength.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find us. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in today's program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay home and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.